The Pellicle Podcast is sponsored by the wonderful folks at Rode Microphones. We've used Rode mics to make this podcast since our very first episode. I'm a big fan of the NT1, their vintage voice studio condenser, which we use for our voiceovers and narration. Recently, I've also turned to their reporter handheld mic, which is perfect for capturing interviews in the field. This introduction is being recorded using their best-selling NT-USB Mini, plus a little EQ and compression. It's a brilliant little USB mic that's perfect for improving your audio, especially your video calls. You just stick it on your desk, plug in your headphones, and sound more like you're in a studio. The NT-USB Mini is available now, and it's just £99 RRP. Go check it out at Rode.com. Thanks again to Rode, and now, it's on with the show. Hello, welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm Matthew Curtis. Now I know what you're thinking. It's been a little while since the last episode. In fact, it's been four months and I'm really sorry about that, guys. That last episode on cider was really popular. It got us to number 21 in Apple's food and drink podcast charts. And I thought, okay, this is great. We've got more and more people tuning in. We've got a bit of momentum. I need to get some more episodes out. But I had to start writing my book, Modern British Beer, which is out from Camera Books on August the 12th. And that took up a lot of my headspace. I'm not going to talk too much about that now, about that process, because I'm going to do a whole episode about writing. The next episode is going to be about that writing process. So I'll, I'll save that story for now. And I don't want to speak too much before we get to our interview today with Paul Jones from Cloudwater Brewery here in Manchester. But before we get to the interview, I do like to just check in where what's happened in the last four months. Well, if you listen to the start of those other episodes, it's a bit doom and gloom. It was lockdown. The virus was running rampant. And for us, people who love great drink, the pubs were closed. So it was a depressing time, really, wasn't it? But things have changed now. The sun is shining. The pubs are open. I've had some wonderful, wonderful cask pints. I can't get enough of delicious cask ale. So I feel like we've turned a corner. I know things are a bit up in the air at the moment, but right now pubs are open. I've had my first vaccine shot with very mild side effects. So when when your vaccine's available, do get it if you can. But yeah, I'm feeling optimistic and I'm feeling good. And it kind of leads into today's conversation because it's it's the first in-person interview I've done in 15 months. In fact, when I turned the mics on at the start, I was nervous. My heart was going. I've been doing these things by Zoom and it was a bit weird, even though Paul is actually someone who I consider a good friend and I've known him for about seven years and I've watched his business grow from when I first visited in 2015 to when he had six employees to one where he now has 50 and he's, he's internationally renowned. In the grand scheme of things, Cloudwater's still quite a, a small brewery, but in terms of UK craft, it's very well known. And Paul, as you know, is, is outspoken. He puts his neck out, and I respect that about him. He constantly challenges me in my stance on things. We do agree on a lot of things, but we, we disagree on others. I think that's healthy. I think if we 
just agreed on everything, then conversations wouldn't be as productive as they are. The reason I wanted to chat to Paul, this interview was actually arranged a while ago, because in January 2016, I had an article published about Cloudwater, and I was really desperate to be the first person to write about them in a meaningful way. And so that article was published on Good Beer Hunting in January 2016. And late last year, I reached out to Paul and said, I want to do like a five-year catch-up, but via podcast rather than writing. And so we tried to arrange a date where we could both sit down and chat, which we were going to do outside because of the restrictions. But then the pandemic got much, much worse and his responsibility was to his business and his staff. So I just thought we'd wait for things to settle down. And that took a little bit longer than we hoped. But eventually we did sit down last week in the car park outside the back of Unit 12, their warehouse at the Piccadilly Trading Estate in an area the team there have affectionately nicknamed the dog and ferret. It's where they have post-work staff drinks outside in a safe space, or at least it's where they did until the tap room opened a couple of weeks ago. But we sat down there and we had a really, really interesting chat. We dug into the pandemic. We had to. It's been all around us. We talked about the beer festival, which happened just before it, friends and family and beer, and how that almost didn't happen, and what's happening, hopefully, with a 2022 version. We do talk about the origins of Cloudwater and, and what's changed over the last five years, but also how the brewery has grown and how Paul's feelings towards beer have, have changed in that time. We also dig into the Manchester scene quite a bit and ask the question, is Manchester the best beer scene in the UK? You'll have to listen on to find out the answer to that. We also talk about a lot of Cloudwater's activism, the Wayfinder scheme, beer with big ideas. And yes, we do touch on Tesco and going into there. But I'm actually going to do an episode in a few weeks time about supermarkets. So a few of you might be like, oh, you didn't really dig into that. And that's because I wanted to talk about Cloudwater and I didn't want to derail the conversation. It's, it's not ignored, but my feelings on supermarkets are well known. Give me a couple of weeks. I've got a big hot take brewing on supermarkets, a few new thoughts to add to that conversation. And that'll be on an episode in a few weeks time. But we also talk about Cloudwater's actual beer, something that often isn't talked about as much. And we get into that their wild and sour program, their lager program. And of course, we talk about their IPAs and their pastry stouts, which are very popular. Now, before we go on, here's a small bit of disclosure. Since we, me and my partner, moved to Manchester, she has actually got a job at Cloudwater. And I feel it's really important to make sure you have that information. You can do what you want with it. People do, but I feel much more comfortable telling you that now rather than people finding out and going, hang on. She's worked in craft beer for about four years now. This is the latest step for her, and I'm very happy. But anyway, now I've got that out of the way, we can continue with the interview. So let's get into it. Here's an hour long chat with Paul Jones, the founder and owner of Cloudwater Bruco in Manchester. Paul Jones, Cloudwater, welcome to the Pellicle Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. My first in-person guest on the podcast in, in nearly 18 months. 
and we, we've picked quite a location for it. We're in, uh, what do you call this place, the Dog and Ferret? It got christened the Dog and Ferret, uh, yeah, so it's a small space out the back of Unit 12, Piccadilly Trading Estate, that we uh, congregate in safety and enjoy a little bit of company. And we did that uh, for, for a few weeks um, late this spring before we could get back to the pub. Just sort of took a, took a bit of pressure off. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, we're, we're, you can see Piccadilly Station from where we're sat. It's a glorious view. It's actually, it's a glorious, it's a glorious day. And it, it's, um, we're trying to get back to normal, aren't we? We've, Some, we've been yeah. through, you, you've just opened your tap room, mm. Unit 9, after mm. being closed for, you, did you reopen in the summer last year? No. Um, why did you stay closed last summer? Because you could have opened. Yeah, we could have. Uh, I mean, my central commitment to the entire company was no one gets sick at work mm-hmm. and no one loses their job and even though we could have opened during the summer last year um, it didn't feel appropriate frankly uh, because we we didn't feel as though we had confidence in the measures that we could take to protect the staff I mean you know the pandemic um has been evolving understanding of the pandemic's been evolving and frankly the information that we've been fed here in the uk has either been wrong or weeks or months late Mm. Uh, and so i felt no confidence in following government guidelines and opening up and doing what we could um, when i felt very confident that we didn't really know how to look staff members in the eye and say you're going to be fine and safe at work and you're not going to get sick so we just took the decision to sit it out really um i I guess another small part of that decision was also holding space open for operators that didn't have alternate ways to do business you know we we were functioning Mm. keeping cash moving making payroll each month essentially doing what we needed to do uh surviving and so it also felt like well you know there are quite frankly businesses that can only make money off draft beer sales Um, so when those opportunities arose and we couldn't resolve how to do that exceptionally safely leave it to other folk that felt like they could yeah yeah Yeah. how does it feel now though to have unit nine open surreal weird you Um, took you took you were one of the first breweries to bring in precautions in in february you know you did a long blog post yep people thought you were overreacting but definitely you you were not (laughs) no no not at all so one of the one of the troublesome aspects of our whole national response was insisting upon data-driven changes Mm. you know and and from my point of view waiting for data to exist was going to take months we could just look at countries that had been through epidemics and pandemics more recently than we had and copy their behavior Mm. so i was paying attention to what hong kong was doing and not necessarily what the government was saying because they were not as precautious in the beginning as they as they ended up being some months in but citizens in hong kong uh reacted quite strongly kind of engaged in a level of social distancing full-time mask wearing and that just made me sit up straight made me think you know what if that's how folk are reacting when they've been through this sort of stuff before 
you know, SARS was a, a obviously a, a very terrifying ordeal for folk in Hong Kong. Um, I just thought, well, let's just let's just adopt the behaviour of people that have this lived experience that we don't have, and and if that means that we're a little bit more precautious than we maybe need to be, the worst that can happen is that we're safer. Yes, indeed. Yeah. But now it's a good feeling. You've got people yeah. in the bar again. The most sophisticated ventilation system. <laughs> oh, without in, a shadow of doubt. Manchester. So, so we've 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 changed our ventilation system in Unit Nine, and it is now geared to operate at a level that would be fit us having a 200 person exercise class doing spinning and it would still remove enough breath vapor per per hour do do sufficient changes per hour that folk would be safe in that environment so uh, we used to really begrudge building controls and systems that we needed such a, an overpowered ventilation system and now we think it's great it's just a little bit more ducting and programming and uh we definitely feel very confident. So we've been using CO2 meters throughout the company in office spaces and enclosed environments, shared working spaces where we couldn't segregate. Um, and now we're running CO2 meters in unit nine. And I can tell you, you know, we have the data to say it's not far off being outside, except you're warm and dry. Indeed. Yeah. And it, it's been, I've been a couple of times and it's been lovely. And you do pints now, which is nice. Yeah. There's been an executive decision there uh, to, 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 go, to move up from two thirds to pints, especially when you've got beers like your Hellas pouring, which suits that, the format. Um, you've uh, you pivoted quite heavily to, to online sales yeah. um, during the pandemic and direct sales. Uh, what was the reasoning and um, the importance of, of taking that action for you? Because some people, didn't agree with it um independent independent bottle shops for example but um what was what was your reasoning for making these difficult decisions um not ending up having to let 50 staff go that's it (laughs) and and you made no redundancies no no so my number like i said you know my number one and two commitments to staff through the pandemic was no one gets sick at work because we're going to adopt very safe working practices and no one loses their job like we will do our utmost to protect every single person um, throughout the company departments that were defunct like taproom staffs um, departments that were you know seeing their roles change immeasurably overnight so uh, folk that don't agree with what we did probably don't understand enough why Mm, mm. (laughs) you know it's quite literally the case that when you have a lot of folk that are placing their trust in your company values um, that work with you and you're saying to them we are going to make sure that you still make payroll every month throughout this pandemic we just had to become a very very different company overnight really Um, the strange thing that the pandemic's amplified from my point of view is is just how how incredibly different every single brewery situation is uh, we like to think that the industry is made up of very similar businesses but you try and find me you know an investment model uh, a route to market model that actually looks like ours uh, you try and find two breweries that really honestly compare mm. in terms of what they're paying staff, what their route to market looks like, what year one looked like to year three. You just can't, you can't really 
uh, honestly make those comparisons when you start to appreciate the industry with the level of detail that that, that I have mm. um, uh, you know on, on just how different breweries are so in a way it's we all look the same because we're making the same beer and we're making fun experiences for people uh, but none of our peers had anything like the same year one to two three four five that we did so our position going into the pandemic was £250,000 worth of uh, beer sold on credit and mm-hmm all of those customers temporarily out of business um, and that that's about you know uh, at that point in time so are you talking draft sales pubs bars rather than cans yeah well our business was 50 50 mm-hmm. draft and into bottle shops but all businesses temporarily shut down mm-hmm. and no one knew when anyone was going to be able to reopen in what format what level of business there would be whether businesses would survive so I just looked at 250,000 pounds that I was not going to get back a major major cash flow crisis um, that we needed to solve within weeks because again at this point in time furlough didn't exist uh, there was rumours of it but no detail and so you know how the hell do you navigate that and again look staff in the eye and be like you actually don't need to worry we're going to do something here that is that is going to protect the business enough to make sure that you're okay um, so we took a decision to function temporarily very differently to the previous five and a half years business we do, we've always been 90 plus percent wholesale um, you know first year 96 percent I think that might have worked down to about 92 or so um, by the time the pandemic hit so we've always been a very very wholesale focused business and we took the decision that the only way that we were going to both save our cash flow and try and cover our ongoing costs was by bringing all of our efforts towards business to customer sales mm. um, you know we've, we've never we've never I, I guess we never imagined um, any kind of point in time where that would be possible in the UK the UK is a, a, a phenomenal scene which is really enriched by all the various different ways in which people can buy beer so we've always we like i say five and a half years before the pandemic our business model was completely in support um of those kind of very rich and diverse ways in which folk can enjoy beer experience and get recommendations and really support wonderful local businesses so yeah uh speaking of wonderful beer experiences right on the cusp of the pandemic you ran a hugely, from my perspective, successful mm. beer festival. We're talking end of February. I wasn't even considering the virus at this point. I mean, uh, we nearly shut it down. Yeah. How close were you to pushing that button? Um, basically, if there had been if there had been a number of cases in the UK uh, that were already being discussed as spreading, we would we would have pulled it. Uh, we were prepared to. I mean, we you know we had. I think we I think we might have sent a memo around to all of the the staff. Uh, all of the visiting brewers, we 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 bought hand sanitizer because mm-hmm. that was the that was the thing that you needed to do. Um, that was the advice that was already starting to kind of you know look like it would be sensible to keep people's hands a bit cleaner. We, so we we you know we we were conscious that gosh this thing's moving closer to the UK. Uh, so I think if if there had been a breakout, 
and a growing breakout in the UK at that time. We would have just pulled the plug, but uh, yeah, got just got that in uh, right before it felt like things really need to shut down. How did it feel for you? Did it feel like a, a successful event to you? Absolutely. So we were how, very. You know, how, how important do you think it was to have that right before everything happened? Looking back now, I mean, you know, we're a very ambitious company, so we we love to do. We love to we love to put like really really good work out in front of drinkers and customers. Um, so bringing people together uh, in this city, making this city a really attractive destination to visit for a festival in bloody winter when it's cold, dark, wet. Um, it's hard, um, but we love doing it because our philosophy at friends and family is different to every single other beer festival in Europe. There's no other beer festival that pours as fresh beer as we do, looks after beer as well as we do. I mean, we know this from um, from the fact of attending lots of festivals uh, for years. We pay full price for the beer. Um, and at the end of it, uh, any profit that we make goes to charity. Uh, and so Friends and Family last year was ambitious in that we finally managed to get like a bit of an industry program off. So we, we brought Dr. J over as a keynote. Um, we set up a really nice program of talks, I guess, to kind of, you know, con- conjure up some interesting and needed conversations that were happening whilst everyone was in the same space. So, yeah, it felt it felt great that we got to live out all of that work that Connor and a whole bunch of the crew had put in for months and months and months before the festival. Uh, felt really good that we managed to do that. We didn't, you know, we didn't feel guilty that we shouldn't have done it because, like I say, if we'd have if we'd have seen any evidence of things going awry here in the UK, we would have just pulled the plug. And indeed, I ended up, you know, I ended up being uh, kind of blown away, stroke terrified at suggestions that other beer events were going to continue apace uh, throughout 2020. There's a lot of optimism, I guess, because, you know, folk don't like to think that terrible things are going to happen. And, you know, I kind of understood where I understood where a lot of the sentiment was coming from, you know, looking looking back at February, March last year when other people throughout the business were, you know, other people throughout the industry, sorry, were, you know, were, were really wanting to keep their shows on the road. Um, yeah, we've, we definitely felt like randomly lucky mm. that our event just so happened to be uh, at a point in time where there wasn't the outbreak and growing outbreak here in the UK. Well, there are there are businesses in in beer that that their economy is built entirely on the back of totally. festivals. So you know it's been a tough tough year for the for the events industry. Big time, really really tough. What, do you think you'll you'll try and bring friends and family back next year, or is that a decision that you've not got there yet? We we will definitely start working on it. Um, we you know we we had a lot of conversations with Manchester Central where we hosted friends and family last year. Um, they were really keen for us to try and do some kind of virtual event this year and it just felt like too much work for for no real return i mean again you know we we're, we're, it's a not for profit festival so we don't do it for money we do it for putting resources towards charitable organizations here in manchester that make a difference to people's lives um but even still it felt like we weren't going to be able to achieve that meaningful output uh, that meaningful donation and you know and it also yeah just didn't really feel like the right time to be putting resources into anything other than just surviving so next year probably i you know, i feel i feel somewhat optimistic that um 
whatever we end up going through towards the end of the summer, autumn and winter this year, there will probably be another series of corners turned uh, throughout the rest of this year. I, I really hope. Um, so it feels reasonable for us to start planning, start thinking about what is attractive to all of our friends and peers, what's attractive to our customer base. You know, how do we make something, how do we imagine something that feels relevant? What is relevant anymore, you know? Um, so we are going to start thinking about it and that, and, the, and that thinking and planning might result in a festival early-ish next year so we'll see what happens well I've got I've got my fingers crossed for that <laughs> like you I follow the data every day yeah <laughs> and uh, yeah I'm, I'm hoping to get back to some beer festivals this year I'm really really hoping um, but for now I'm content to be in the pub um, I want to I want to cast uh, cast you back a few years now sure. to to when we first met I think that was late 2014 um, and this was before you'd built the brewery and we met we went on a little pub crawl and you <laughs> you I want to talk about how you felt at the start of that journey of Cloudwater and to how you feel now so you, you it was, I think it was November 2014 and you joined a few of us on a bit of an epic tour as I was doing some research for mm. uh, something that never got published but um, like what was you, you'd got the site and you were starting to to load gear in what what was your feeling then at the, right at the start at Cloudwater in terms of like how was the beer scene like can you can you remember how you felt yeah. se- seven years ago yeah I, I felt really excited I felt like there was a good chance that we were going to bring something into existence that Manchester would fall in love with and you know it felt really exciting to be putting a team together of people that had enormous experience within the beer industry so it felt it felt like we had quite a lot of sort of power in our conviction um and yeah you know i guess god you're so busy when you're setting up a business that of course everything's everything's kind of about the future but you're so busy in the present moment that you just keep keep yourself kind of locked into what needs doing that day that morning that week but we you know the the over the overriding feeling i think between all of us in the brewery and in the, in the in the team that was kind of forming them was just one of like excitement and anticipation. Uh, yeah, kept it's, us going. What? Well, do you remember the date you released your first beers? I remember brewing our first beers on Valentine's Day. Okay. Because um, I ended up having dinner um, with Rob Saltis and and my wife Vivian because uh, I felt really sad about Rob being, uh, you know, quite frankly thousands of miles away from his home in San Diego and not with his wife so we had a meal out for three um, and then we did a, a national tour uh, in in March where we hit up I think it was six or seven I think it was seven different venues in six different cities and we had the great pleasure of touring truly some of the UK's best beer bars um, and debuting our beer what were those beers? I remember there was a Goza, lemon Goza, yeah, a Hopfenweiss. Could have been a Hopfenweiss from day. I mean, you know, Session IPA was was still a really big thing. Uh, there was a pale ale uh, on cask. Um, I, th- I don't know whether we got the stout out. We might have got the, the the first Imperial Stout out at that time as well. But there was no Dipper. Oh no, definitely not. No. So, 
when did the dipper come that was a, I, like, I really want to like because the reason I want to dig into this is is five years ago I had an article published about you guys on mm. Good Beer Hunting and I read it and recently and it felt like reading about a different brewery yeah that's that's you know <laughs> it was it was you um, I think I that was published January 2016 so I would have been here September 2015 uh, to see the brewery and when you did the tastings yep. you know we couldn't even stand in those places now because they're full of tanks and canning <laughs> equipment like in the original unit but like it was a very, it was a lot more not that it doesn't have a certain feeling of serenity in the brewery it's, it's always quite a calm place but it's not the same as it was no, not at all 10 years ago also sorry 5 years ago but um, the dipper series that kind of changed everything i mean you came along as as a hot new brewery but then these beers kind of propelled you it felt like it created motion what was the feeling did you did you have any expectation from those beers definitely um so my philosophy at the time was it sounds really disruptive and i'm I'm generally generally um wanting to kind of think about business in a in a way that sparks a lot of passion in the team um and i and i also want you know want beer to kind of fit really well into people's lives so my philosophy at the time was okay let's imagine um tap you know tap room here at the brewery bars up and down the country let's imagine beer twitter at 4 p.m tweets out uh, a beer that's debuting that night what is that beer going to look and taste like and how is it going to be described in a way that makes you want to make a beeline for that place as soon as you finish work so that was our sort of first philosophy really um that was the start of us genuinely centering the consumer and consumer impact and excitement as a fundamental goal for the brewery and when we started to feel like we were achieving some of that i set the sights higher and we then went for okay you've got home and you're tired and you've just had your tea and you've got that kind of sleepiness you don't want to go out you've got your feet up weather might be a bit shit and then you see that beer twitter blow up of like holy shit something's just tapped and you know that you've got to go back into town (laughs) <laughs> and that's literally what so that is where dipper came from um it came from you know how how what does that experience look and feel like how do we make something that is so impactful that it just drives people to bars mm. um and the more that we thought about that the more that we i, I guess kind of drilled into our own experiences you know we went back through the hop from vice really really captivating qualities of a beer that was having a lot of body and flavour contribution from yeast. Um, a lot of folk these days like to sort of um, complain about the lack of diversity in UK beer. You know, everything's like New England strain and Dipper esque, but like then everything was USO five. Um, L- literally, every <laughs> beer being released was being fermented with the same strain of yeast. Pretty much. So, so when we started working with, um, you know, with wheat beer strains and hops and kind of seeing what could be done we just got really excited about gosh if we could actually pull a solid contribution from yeast into the beer hop it to a high level and that's where that you know it was basically we believed in ourselves as drinkers sufficiently enough that we thought god if we can make ourselves excited if we can get that kind of buzz going in 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 the team um and then 
surely there are going to be people out there that are going to feel the same mm. and so it felt it felt really really exciting and the, and the cool thing that you know that whole series did for us um, our anticipation at the start of the, the life of the brewery was that you know like, yeah, we, were, we were going to do all this kind of fun stuff and you know we were like I'm sure people are going to like really get it and really be on board and I mean we just had to wade through a lot of animosity a lot of rejection where do you think that came from we were doing things differently and gatekeepers didn't like it mm. uh, whether it was beer buyers or bar owners or beer buyers at, you know in, in bars rather than at distributors or distributors themselves a lot of folk were a bit cross-armed about things changing and being done differently you know they, I got told hundreds of times no core range is going to close your business uh, no one wants to drink strong beer more than once or twice a year um, and again we so I just instead of trying to convince people that were naysaying um, I just kind of jumped over their heads and concentrated on what the consumers were saying mm. and you know I mean uh, I don't dismiss any of the work that I know a great number of people have done over the years to support us uh, you know whatever time they properly came on board but the first two years of Cloudwater were very much the case that we were we were the direct communication with customers we were building the buzz and customers were going out and walking to their local bars or bottle shops and being like where's the cloud water because we were we were making these really compelling exciting beers something i remember from that time is visiting manchester and going to bars i'm like oh i'm going to try some cloud water and not seeing this is very early this might be about 2015 i can't find any cloud water then going back to london but there's cloud water in all the craft beer bars and th- there was it was definitely a thing uh, we, we, we were like completely rejected uh, by folk that I guess felt a little bit threatened um, the scene you know and this is this is the kind of slight um, slight sort of like uh, twist of experience that I guess we had inside looking out to you know folk looking back at our story it's kind of easy to it's easy to misremember and, and, and kind of get the impression that oh yeah we just kind of nailed it and had had this like great easy ride no it was heartbreaking it, it honestly upset me every single day on that drive home or on the journey home you know mulling over again and again why are like what is it when when the beer's on the taps it flies out but folk you know folk were just kind of keeping us at arm's length and honestly um it took it took the national and international acclaim through rate beer for Manchester to truly come round. And now, though, it feels like there are some venues that, that, that love having your beer on. Totally. You know, the guys at the City Arms, Beer oh, yeah. Moth. Yeah. How, how has that feeling changed? How has Manchester uh, changed? Has it embraced you now, do you feel? Yeah, well, to be, you know, to be fair to a lot of folk that were in the industry at that point in time I mean there was a lot going on and there was some really really cynical horrible trolls that were quite vocal that were probably whipping up all sorts of things that I was trying to either you know fight off correct or ignore because it was traumatising um, so you know I think that there was yeah the scene was kind of um, curious uh, but I think it really it really took yeah like I say it took that kind of massive welling up of appreciation and love for what we were doing from the consumer base to to win uh, a lot of the local industry and, and, and industry elsewhere um, that was maybe a bit sceptical now honestly um, 
you know we, we definitely feel a lot of love uh, from the city it now feels like we can kind of get out um, and knock on more doors um, and, and, and for the most part find people extremely receptive I know you've got a particular love for some of the, the more suburban bars. I mean, people come to Manchester and town is like from the northern quarter to Deansgate. There's some amazing places, but I've lived in Manchester for coming on eight months now. And what I've noticed is it's all these little yeah. bars outside like that. There's, there's these lovely, almost villagey communities. Totally. Yeah, you know? no. yeah, I think the scene in Manchester now is um, it's developed to a point where there are you know, we've got some of our best customers uh, nationwide in, in, the, in this city when we kind of look at some of the volumes that uh, some, some local customers get through. I'm going to put you on the spot. Would you say it's the best beer scene in the UK? Hands down. Why? It, you can't find another city that, is, that has been home to as much innovation in beer. Full stop. Uh, if you go all the way back to Brendan Dobbin in West Coast and work your way back from, you work your way to the present moment from, from then, no one was innovating in, in hoppy beer as a city that also supported the great number of family brewers that we still have in good business. One of the few cities that resisted, this, you know, you've got three family brewers, you know, four, including yeah. Robbie's in Stockport, um, whereas many sold to the, the big six in the 60s and 70s, Manchester hung on yeah totally. so. well exactly I think, I think so I think our heritage is really 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 strong and I think what's happened post sort of 2010 in craft as a continuation of the massive strides that were being made in microbreweries in this city prior to then um, I think this city has always pushed really hard and you can't go back to either the the sort of early 2010s or the mid 2010s and find anything like us elsewhere mm. in the country therefore therefore i mean it sounds very self-congratulatory but you, you you know no whilst there was excellent beer in in many other cities nowhere quite had the concentration of that traditional uh, micro brewing younger breweries same age as us kind of dabbling in really cool hybrid kind of micro brewing to craft cask and and developing super super drinkable brands um yeah we we just we you we know we we never felt honestly we never felt like anybody in the uk um as a, a sort of city region of, of of breweries we never felt like anybody ever gave us any pressure mm. in those first few years there were people that were making good beer that were loved but no one was like really trying to turn up the volume a little bit mm. and no so it felt like no one was really you know no one was really giving us that much hard work and uh, and so that's what gives me the confidence to say i think manchester genuinely has has made the context within which we started brewing uh, here at cloudwater was just so inventive and progressive that we just had to live up to that so five years ago reading that article referring back to that article you, you you didn't come across to me as a Manchester brewery you were in Manchester but you were a brewery for the UK yeah. how do you think that's changed do, do you feel like Cloudwater now is a, a Manchester brewery well you know what I kind of think that we always were um, because again when it comes down to like what we were being inspired by Manchester's always been a city that's punched well above its weight. Uh, you know, music's outperformed here, sports outperformed here, 
uh, arts have outperformed here. You know, this is just a, a you know, a, a, a post-industrial city that's that's managed to sort of drag itself out of um, post-industrial deprivation through grit and determination. And so, in a way, being more ambitious than just trying to make folk in local pubs and bars really happy with what we were doing was always meant to overserve the city. We were always trying to do something that you know was beyond the local expectations so that eventually that would loop back around and people would be like holy shit this excellent thing of a you know this excellent brand this excellent brewery you know like wow they've got a reputation uh, up and down the country and all over the world and that's right here in this city so maybe you know maybe you could say that kind of like confidence that we welled up in those early years i think that's think that's very manchester mm. so i think not being you know not being kind of focused in the same way that a microbrewery um with a very small footprint of of kind of pubs not being focused in that particular way um i think that's kind of i think there's something quite mank about that mm. absolutely i agree um you've always been uh struck me as someone who really loves their beer you, you, not just the way it tastes but the way it fills itself in as a sort of social construct but you've been running a brewery now for six years how has your uh, beer experience changed do you do you still uh, enjoy it as much have you had to alter any of your perceptions on on your attitude towards beer um it, you know it's funny especially hanging around with a lot of other uh, brewery owners as i get the chance to do at festivals and and conferences and whatnot it is pretty common to find people that you know that that are going through a phase of not particularly being massively into what they're making, not really maybe being completely into beer and drinking uh, lots of lager, lager, <laughs> wine, uh, cocktails, like something else. I you know I think the thing is is when you're you know when you when you're thinking about your job as much as it's easy to do in this industry. It's very easy to kind of get burnt out. Um, me, I really love beer. Mm. Um, you know, and even when, even when I feel like I'm getting a bit fed up with the problems that we can't seem to solve, or uh, you know, maybe not like completely enamoured with a certain style of beer for a while, such as the richness and diversity of beer that you can just wander off and play in a different space for a bit. But I love, I love the social context. Uh, that beer creates i love being in pubs i love seeing people have fun <laughs> hasn't the pandemic really brought that that into perspective have, having spent months on the sofa i yeah. don't know how it is for you but like missing the pub and not i like just being in the pub yeah um and the the beer you know pete brown once famously said in one of his books that beer is sticky when it dries because it's the social glue that holds us together i love that line i repeat it often but um it, the, the pandemic really hammered that home didn't it yeah i think it you know it was it was it was extremely painful to not be able to gather with people uh not be able to have that that kind of um presence in front of other people and not to be able to be changed not just by what people said but you know what their body language was um i really miss that i'm a very sociable person um so i think in in part that's where 
you know those weekly live streams came from mm. it's like just how do we how do we hold some kind of social context open uh, during this you know social distancing pandemic let's talk about those for a second just so the, the listeners have got a bit of bit of uh, context so you've been doing these live streams for for several months now right every wednesday uh yeah every wednesday since april last year i've missed one and you just you literally just talk for a couple of hours and get a guest on and have some beers on it, youtube i mean that's that's the very basic oh no i think it's even more basic than that we just get fucking hammered with people at <laughs> home um and you know all like we you know we we have loads of ambition for trying to educate consumers and enthuse consumers about specific features of beer and the industry and whatnot but honestly all we were trying to do is kind of replace the night at the pub so we we you know we've been gathering often pulling beer in that folk couldn't get and maybe would have sought out in a pub or in a festival so you know using our network and a lot of that was also to bring a bit of excitement to our pals abroad who were going through it too it was very exciting i mean you know like doesn't really move the needle that much but we were buying enough beer to get a couple of pallets together from a whole bunch of different breweries either around the country or further afield into the states people were drinking beer uh kind of at the same time that it was being consumed in the states a week or at worst two weeks after packaging that's wild uh, two, two whole weeks yeah exactly yeah <laughs> sort of you know so all all we were wanting to do was drink like quite literally drink with people um and and you know the, the uh woes of technology meant that we just had to do that in a bit of a broadcast basis but yeah we've just been getting smashed every wednesday night and and trying to have a bit of a laugh and genuinely trying to you know i did go on like I, I went on so many tory rants that um harry made me like a stinger um so now if i ever do that there's this like bbc style like flash <laughs> up of tory rant with paul jones um because i was really I, you know i was so pissed off um can you ex- can you explain what crikey bloggins means as well <laughs> you can t- explain tory rants as well like i i share your anger but like <laughs> yeah crikey bloggins is like i'm um I don't genuinely try to police my language that much anymore. Um, so I, I tend to swear, um, not loads, but a fair bit. Mm. And um, and again, swearing around uh, conversations about the incompetence of the government during the pandemic was very frequent on the stream. And, and, and one night, instead of swearing, I said, crikey, bloggings. And the, the team just <laughs> cried laughing. <laughs> Uh, for a solid five minutes because they were just like this is so weird like you would usually just drop another f-bomb but they're (laughs) um i'm interested in now that you're opening up um how important you still feel those live streams are because something that's evident from i was really uncomfortable with things like zoom early on in the pandemic many people were but now i'm like this was incredibly valuable i've started doing some beer education stuff online to people who wouldn't normally be able to get a train to london or manchester there's immense value with it so how do you think that live stream will fit into to what you do is it going to be something you you continue to do i think we're going to try and make sure that every single in-person event we do has a live stream uh, uh, side to it so whether that is whether that is quite literally like we're live streaming as the event's happening in person or we're doing some 
some content capture uh, to post afterwards. I, I, I really, really love what we're able to do through live streaming, like you say, to reach customers that aren't in Manchester, that couldn't be here. It's um, We had Johnny Garrett uh, up yesterday uh, to take part in a live stream uh, around a load of, of Best Bitter last night. And he was discussing the same sort of uh, feature that he you know he sees he sees about a fifth uh, of the viewers turn up on the night and then four fifths of the viewings will happen in the week after mm. so you know making that space online holding that open I think is definitely something that we're going to put our all into even as things are opening back up because again for folk that can't for folk that aren't here in Manchester and can't come and visit us in person can't come and hang out we we really want to try and hold those spaces open and I think that there's going to be a place for a digital element to a whole lot of events going forward I think I I certainly really appreciate what being able to virtually attend an event um means to me so the level of convenience there of course is not the same of course if you could be there in person and and all the rest of it great but uh yeah it's something that we're going to it's something that we're really really going to try and keep going especially internationally i think it's going to be while you know nationally we might be opening up um you know the thought of jetting off to to new zealand or or the states that still feels like a fair way away definitely big time Let's talk about your beer for a minute because I know there's, there's, there's so much to talk about, but I feel like we never talk about your beers. <laughs> like, just what, what have you been brewing recently that you've really loved? Um, I, I think more than anything, we've been experimenting with our Hellas production in a way that, that is getting us pretty excited. We just did a, um, two different tasting panels in this past week, um, sampling 15 different... Um, 15 different breweries Hellas um, alongside ours and we think we're making some pretty damn exciting progress so this is your, your pale lagers there's been I mean yeah they, they are tasting fantastic at the moment um, but you're also making some you're still putting out a lot of incredible IPAs yep. why do you think there's such a a thirst a delight there's so much, still so much excitement around these styles what's driving that for you I still, you know, I think the same thing that's always driven IPAs. You can only get those particular flavour combinations in hoppy beer. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of other qualities of other beers that that you can access through other foods and drinks. But if you want to get that combination of unique flavours that comes into uh, pale ales and IPAs and whatnot, I mean, you literally, you literally just need to be drinking those beverages. Mm. So I think I think it's always really really exciting. Um, for consumers, you know anybody that's anybody that's into hops, you just can only get that fixed through hops. Your pastry stouts have been wildly successful as yeah. well. My continuous improvement. There's yeah. been demand. God, like- I, God, I wish we'd had a better name for that brand, but whatever. You can't, <laughs> where did you- that Where did that come from? Well, you know, I, I, um, I my continuous improvement was just a a kind of riff on what we were trying to do in um, starting off looking back at our stout program up to that point recognizing it, the inadequacies from our point of view again you know coming back down to impact being a really important quality in our beer we just knew that we weren't we were drinking stouts from a whole load of different breweries around the world finding them very very exciting 
um, and then not finding those experiences at home and it was like fuck we need to we need to fix that so I'd like to, I like those beers but they're, they're very strong I'd love a four and a half percent version <laughs> just a, a nice chocolatey pintable yeah you know we're excited uh, we are getting a new canning line in about a month um, that comes with uh, nitrogen dosing capabilities Ooh. enough said um, you know we <laughs> I'm sure that we experiment a lot um, with again brands like MCI um, we've done we've done some really exciting um, ingredient additions in that series you know if it, they're 600 calorie cans of beer. Yes. Like you really aren't supposed to have them very often. It's a liquid donut. It, yeah, it, it is It is a treat and a beverage in, in one experience. Uh, why is that popular? I mean, you know, we make one every couple of months or so. It's you know, We make a single batch. Um, and it feels really good to give, give folk in the UK vegan pastry stouts we don't use lactose we we never have we never will um we don't you know we when we use whole ingredients when we're flavoring the beer um i have been in the past very very dismissive of breweries that have used uh, flavorings um i've never felt I've, I've always felt a bit duped to discover you know oh god how did you get that like really precise hazelnut flavor uh, just opened a jar and poured it in um, you know, like it, 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 it's kind of like it's irritating to realise that that's what's happened because, because as a, you know, as someone that loves putting together really, really delightful experiences, you kind of don't want it to be too easy as well, mm. um, and and you want a bit of challenge about it. So yeah, we we love making that series, um, and and I think that that's that again kind of harks back to some of the. Um, some of the strategy that I employed back in 2015, 2016 that led to not just dippers but a whole load of the different styles of beer um, I always look for gaps in the market mm. that I think we can occupy really successfully so a lot of our rate beer success came down to looking at what styles had representation from UK breweries realising that like pff, no one's like no one's got an IPL that's that's doing much. Like we can get that spot, cool. And then when we hit, when we really hit, uh, you know, when we really hit the the sweet spot with the double IPAs, I mean, we just got busy doing what customers wanted, which was varying those recipes with either different yeast or different malt bases, but always different hop combinations. And realizing that, like, gosh, we could, you know, rather than just make this one product, we could take that formula that worked really really well uh you know twist it vary it evolve it and make more delightful experiences for customers and one of the style of beer you're doing that i want to talk about is your your barrel project your wild ales because yeah. that for me the recent releases have, have been a huge leap forward for me oh, massive. And, and lee yeah. who's doing that project is is your your blender yeah um, he's doing some incredible work. Totally. Why, why do you think that's it, that's now kicking into gear for you? Uh, so the barrel project had always been a bit of a, a kind of afterthought. Uh, you know, we would buy barrels in, stick a couple of things aside, see how it worked out. Um, back in the early days, there was um, a, a strong focus on Britannomyces, a, a complete reluctance to employ 
kind of like complex mixed lactobacillus cultures or you know didn't no didn't want to bring like pedio into the brewery etc etc so i guess we were we we always felt like we were really timid uh too timid uh with a lot of our barrel aged beer production in those early years and occasionally we'd hit a sweet spot that was a bit bolder um but there'd be like one barrel or two barrels so kind of just taking all those learnings um and bringing them all together we we had someone focus on the barrel program for about a year with the intention of of kind of getting the releases happening on the regular basis and uh, and that didn't work out um as as we as we all had we know wished it wished it would have done but lee who was heading up our packaging team at the time is you know he's streets ahead in terms of experience of drinking uh mixed firm beers uh, spontaneous beers he's got one hell of a palate well yeah he's been to uh, he's been to brussels for those sorts of drinking experiences more i think more than the rest of us put together so one of the things that works out really really well is when you've got good drinking experience it just gives you that confidence uh to put together products knowing that you've already got your finger on the pulse mm. and so when lee's putting beers together of course you know he's really really loving learning a lot uh through this new role um but his palate's exceptional um he never uh, flinches to hand out samples and take the sort of harsh and cutting feedback that we issue internally for the sake of good customer experiences he never he never kind of flinches away from that he's always like what do you think and if we've got something bad to say he'll embrace it go away and think about how to iron those kinks out for next time mm. um so i think you know his work ethic um in combination with his immense experience yeah he's a really really good person to be working on that project and the beers are absolutely hands down on another level to anything that we've ever produced uh, we're also um very very fortunate that the work that we've been putting in with Sean at Organic North I started uh, tapping Sean up four or five years ago uh, for quantities of organic fruit and it's taken us years to kind of win the trust of some producers enough that they're like, yeah, I'll put a couple of tons aside for you, knowing that you're definitely going to buy it next year. Um, so some of that, some of some of that works really paying off at the same time too. And randomly meeting a phenomenal barrel supplier um, in Belfast um, at a trip of all to, places, yeah, <laughs> this trip to Boundary um, that kind of changed things too. So yeah, it's been a lot of. Um, a lot of work over the years to try and shape that project up and a lot of things are just slotted into place right now i agree like like those beers um they're just starting to sort of filter through now the releases it's it they are streets ahead of some of those earlier uh, mixed fermentation beers you did so that's that's very exciting definitely and i want to talk a bit about you, your tagline because for a long time you've used the the term modern seasonal beer yeah do you what does that mean to cloud water in 2021 i don't know really uh we're, we're thinking about it again uh you know we're thinking about what what seasonality meant to us when we first started was styles of beer that were really drinkable so that would be looking at you know brown ales and porters and stouts 
when when we wanted to make cask beer and sit round a fire at a pub in the autumn and winter it would be you know lighter hoppier table beers grisettes wits saisons British hop lagers um, in the summer Um, now with the amount of breweries in this country with the incredible number of releases that's happening um, I think kind of we're going back to the drawing board a little bit and trying to reassess how can we how can we make an expression of seasonality um, in our ingredients you know we get hops sent through to us um, every winter from uh, Yakima from our purchasing there and we get hops sent through to us generally at the end of the summer from our from our selection and purchasing work down in New Zealand you know how can we how can we make a bigger focus of that I guess recently we've done some pretty interesting single hopped series to sort of present those lots and and that production year um, but yeah we we are scratching our heads again for how to make a good expression of seasonality in this uh, in this point in time you know it's um it doesn't feel quite like the point of difference that it was when we opened up and i guess a lot of that's to do with the fact that there's a great many more breweries turning their hands to a great many more styles you know but recently you came out with a new tagline oh yeah yeah. beer with big ideas Mm. so why don't you tell me about that what what spurred that change a lot of that really came out of working closely with Stacy at Rock Leopard and having my eyes opened to how the beer industry looks from his perspective his experiences of trying to get his foot through the door trying to get his beer onto shelves pouring through taps um you know, we, we've we we've loved through working relationships with a whole variety of different breweries and in craft beer. We've loved pulling brands to the attention of our drinkers. So it doesn't matter whether someone is the biggest selling brewery in their in their state over in the States or or whether they're absolutely revolutionary here in Europe. Uh, we've always loved kind of featuring breweries that we felt were making a big difference to the sort of drinking experiences that folk can have and over the years um, and especially the last three years I would say um, my focus has shifted away from what's exciting in the glass to you know what's exciting and necessary in terms of change and development of the scene in terms of the beer industry being a little bit less centred on um, really a single demographic and you launched your Wayfinder scheme last yeah. year which um, propelled our mutual friend Lily Waite mm. into the well further into the spotlight she was already oh yeah definitely she was already there but now you've given Lily a platform to l- literally open her own brewery yeah what's the why I mean but you could have used those resources to, to, to buy more tanks grow the brewery why was it important to to not just your financial and physical resources but your time and energy what was the importance of doing that for Cloudwater and for yourself I think we've reached the point where um, where we recognised a, a great many 
obstacles that were in the way of folk um, that really should be having a, a kind of easier ride or a more productive ride and it just doesn't feel appropriate or right to recognise that and not try and do something about it um, recognising the hills that Stacy's been climbing for years and years and years trying to get his name out there um, beers that arguably are, are, are really um, they're really quite similar to a lot of breweries that are like loved and bought every single week of the year and so it's just like well look what what can we do you know like we we've we've got this platform that we've built we've got this reputation that we've built are we really are we really just going to use that for us i mean you know i'm a i'm a very team-centered business owner i love paying people well i love trying to improve our culture i love trying to make a really 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 good life for our crew here but i just started to feel like no we can do more than that we can do that and um use the business as a platform for people that could benefit from a hand up um so yeah the 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 beers with big ideas is a is a is a real sort of call to action for ourselves and maybe for maybe for some other folk to reflect a little bit on what they can do with their businesses and their platforms to you know help give a hand up to 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 brands and people that need it and you're working with four brands now Mm. uh so queer brewing um rock leopard Mm. Echo Brewery, yeah. um, and what we're drinking now, Good Karma, Steve, yeah. and you, you're con- they're contract brewing their own beer here. Yep. Um, and again, you know, like we do, we do not have space for that. Um, but you, you're finding it somehow. We're making it, you know. So in a way, that's a, that's a kind of weird like defunding exercise. Like we could make more of our beer and sell it and make that margin as opposed to you know giving out that production capacity but it it feels like the right thing to do because fundamentally you know we we were we were trying to um we were trying to help stacy we've made step up um that was that was great still a good beer we're still kind of always developing that recipe and then we were like okay this is cool stacy's got a bit more of a sort of profile um but he was just struggling to get slots uh, to, to brew his beer. So then it was like, okay, we should make some slots happen. And we've just kind of been constantly developing our ambition um, to try and serve Stacy and Lily and Charlotte and Anthony and Helena, Steve. And now, yeah, now we get to the point where we've really stepped that up um, like way beyond anything we thought was possible. And, and what we're going to be able to produce from that is pretty mind-blowing and the the, um, the latest development in that is that you've done this four pack called beer with big ideas and we're drinking uh, the good karma uh, non-alcoholic uh, beer from that package now but instead of doing it here you decided to scale up partner with Brewdog as the contract brewer and put that in Tesco mm. and that was met with as well as four beers of your own um, and that was met with some uh, you know indifference and it was met with some anger it, it was an emotional mm. indifference is the wrong word it was an emotional time because previously you said you wouldn't take that route mm. what made you change your mind many conversations with Stacy and Lily last year uh, covered what they wanted to do with their businesses and where they wanted to be and we saw an opportunity to help them realise their dreams and we're doing it so you know we're not we're able again we're able to kind of reflect on the fact that we've got this 
privileged position. We've got a phenomenal reputation. Uh, we've got a really strong pull. Tesco have been chomping uh, at the bit for years to try and hook us in, and it's never made sense. Why would we? Why would we carve production away from all of our customer base that we've been working with for years and make less money? Um, why would we scale up the brewery and take on the risk of being a much, much larger brewing facility uh, with all the additional investment that that would require um, just to try and serve that grocery market ourselves? So, yeah, we're really sort of coming together, coming together with the opportunity uh, to, to contract produce at a pretty incredible scale at BrewDog um, and then also use that to further the aims of these wonderful small breweries that are now, you know, they're going to benefit from five-figure payouts over this year alone. Uh, and we hope that that will grow considerably over the next couple of years to the point where they'll be able to break ground with their own premises, um, get their hands on their own facilities. That is some pretty hefty change work. Why did I change my mind? because I could and because it was the right thing to do um, it was never attractive to just make more beer with the ambition of just making more money I'm not driven by that at all I'm driven by trying to have a really impactful nice life that makes me feel proud of what we are all doing here that makes all of us here proud of what we're doing and you know we had a series of meetings looking at the pros and cons for taking this opportunity and we all decided that, God damn it, this is just going to be so impactful and so life-changing uh, for these brands. And then you, you start to expand your thinking out beyond just these four brands, beyond these small teams. And you look at, you know, you talk to Anthony and Helena, you talk about the people that have been inspired in their family and friend circles to start their own businesses, seeing Echo exist not even get to the point where it's you know standing on its own two feet yet but the fact that echo exists is inspiring their friends and their family to think about doing their own things so it's it is transformative uh, to support these small businesses in the way that we're doing and i'm immensely proud that we've been able to facilitate that you only have to look at the comments on echo's instagram yeah. to see the real impact totally it's making yeah uh, from black beer drinkers are like this is this is a product I can relate to this totally. is a product I I can engage with and it's only the start yeah. really yeah totally I feel like beers the beer industry is in a bit of flux at the moment we've gone through this this mad 10 years and then we've hit the pandemic yeah. so there's a lot of change in the air and I think you know for me a lot of the reactions come from this sort of uncertainty but for Cloudwater how do you deal with that uncertainty and, and where do you hope to, to end up when you're through it? Uh, I mean, there are things that we're pretty sure about. We're, we're pretty sure that we won't get a fair ride. Um, we're pretty sure that folk will try and decenter our values and centre something else that's really important to them. So there are, there's a bunch of certainty in the industry uh, that, that's not, all, not always the good stuff. I, I guess, you know, when, when we are facing uncertain times, when we don't know what's going to happen in these next few years, I mean, our pandemic response as a brewery was we started buying uh, produce and donating it and we fed all the staff we were buying in fruit and veg and 
uh, dry foods for the staff so that they didn't have to go to the supermarket and get stressed out about that and then we started working with Mary Ellen and that led to me being on the board at Eat Well uh, which is a CIC uh, that's been feeding uh, hundreds of people a week since the pandemic started and then I did a whole load of volunteering work at you know racial justice network last year after donating a load of cash to them from our black is beautiful beer our pandemic response fundamentally was doing as much as we possibly could that felt good and honorable and like we were helping other people out you know we we had breweries listed through our tap uh, through our sorry not through our tap room for our online shop because they didn't have their own online shop and they and they didn't have the staff resource to make that happen so we were like look let's just list your product and and market yourself through us and we'll take 10 percent off the top basically to cover the cost of the cardboard uh, and shipping alone no labor costs whatsoever we'll do that so that you survive and mark wellsby at runaway uh, says all the time matthew at boundary says all the time a whole load of the folk who we managed to stock last year say we just wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that so our entire pandemic response was to dig deep and try and be as helpful as we possibly could with um with the business and i think that that is how we'll continue to operate i think when you're faced with uncertainty and you don't know what's going to work do the thing that feels right do the thing that feels powerful do the thing that feels transformative you know take the circumstances that you've got take the opportunities that you've got and make something phenomenal happen you know it's easy to look at the pandemic and just feel just complete like I, you know i'm i'm prone to a lot of anxiety um you know I've, I've been living with anxiety ever since i was in my early 20s i'm prone to over worrying about everything and i thought to myself well this whole situation right now might just end up like might end up completely overpowering me and completely deflating me and making me feel like the only thing to do is kind of you know hide i didn't want to do that didn't feel right especially not looking around and seeing folk that were up against it in other ways that we bloody weren't ourselves so it's like let's just let's work together let's dig in let's make some really phenomenal things happen and that's what we've done all the way through the pandemic and i think that's the business that we are now well there you go that was paul jones from cloudwater I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. In fact, after that interview, we, we sat down in the dog and ferret, the little space outside Cloudwater, and we had a beer together and a chat. And he turns to me and says, do you know what? I can't remember the last time someone asked me about our beer, just the beer. Because there's a lot happening that we really need to be engaged in at the moment, especially these conversations around racism and sexism in the industry and, and toxic workplace culture. But... We also have to remember that there are people working hard to make really delicious beers every day, going into work every day. And Cloudwater are making some of the best in the country at the moment, genuinely. Their lagers truly are sensational. I like that you can enjoy them by, by the pint now in the tap room. And if you do get down to Unit 9, their little tap room here in Manchester, it's a great space. Do dig into some of the mixed firm stuff we talked about, the sour and fruited ales that come in big wine bottles that Lee Daniels is making. Like we said in the interview, he's got a real great taste and perception of where these beers should be. And I think they're in a really exciting place 
with those beers. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Before I go, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you for listening. If you've ever got any thoughts about the podcast, you can email me. It's Matthew with two T's at pellicalmag.com. And it would mean a lot to me if you are enjoying these podcasts, if you subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, if you hit that subscribe button now, that helps their algorithms find the podcast and it helps more people find the podcast. And there's a lot of food and drink podcasts. In fact, beer podcasts go in with all the food and wine podcasts, which have a lot more listeners. So just hitting subscribe will help more people find us who might enjoy this podcast. And a special thank you go to our Patreon supporters who who make Pellicle possible. We have about 240 individuals and some businesses that choose to give us a little bit of money every month. Now, it's really important to me and my co-founder, Johnny Hamilton, that we keep Pellicle free for everyone. The website and the podcast will never be behind a paywall or anything like that. But the people who do pay, that money goes directly to all of our contributors And it now goes to our two new associate editors, Lily Waite and Katie Mather, who've been writing for Pellicle since we launched in 2019. But they are now part of a a four-person strong editorial team. And we all pay ourselves a little retainer every month, which means we can spend more time working on content like this podcast, more articles for the website. So if you can donate a little bit every month, if it's a pound or whatever you can afford, it's patreon.com forward slash pellicle mag anyway i'm going to leave it there i'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode about writing and i just want to say thanks for listening and i'm glad to be back have a lovely day you've been listening to the pellicle podcast